Good morning. Let's continue our time of worship to the Lord God Almighty by opening our Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, it's on page 892 in your pew Bible. It's so wonderful to see all of you out today, and I pray that God's Word would build you up in your walk with Christ and in your relationship to others. Romans 13, verses 8 to 14. This is the Word of the Lord, the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle Paul. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. It's his word of grace to us to build us up as we gladly receive it, believe it, and obey it. It was 11 years ago this month that our family moved to Webster, New York, from Weymouth, Massachusetts. It was actually on on Father's Day that we had our final worship service there. And after the worship service, we we packed up the moving truck and got ready to make that six-hour journey from Weymouth to Webster. And there were uh, church members that were sticking around and and helping us pack, um, thankfully not eagerly, (laughs) to get us going, um, but just to be a help to us. And when the time came goodbye, I could just feel... Uh, the emotion powerfully rising up within me. We were so excited about coming here to Webster knowing God had called us, but we literally felt like our hearts were being torn in two as we said goodbye to our church family in Weymouth, Massachusetts. So there was a lot of uh, strong hugs and words of encouragement and affirmation and appreciation. And as we pulled away, we just found ourselves celebrating that the, the bond that we had as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I must confess that uh, things were not always that way at our previous church. Uh, The first few years were really, really hard. There was a lot of conflict, strife, division, and infighting within the church. And I remember one church meeting, it, it came to a head. And there was actually in a church meeting, yelling and argument and accusations taking place. And at one point in the meeting, a godly young man who actually later became my associate pastor stood up and simply quietly read a few lines from 1 Corinthians 13. In a soft voice, he simply said, love is patient, love is kind, love is not easily angered, 
Love does not behave disgracefully, and so on and so forth. Many of you know the passage. And when he was done, he simply sat down without further comment. And uh, it's like a hush just came over the congregation for maybe a few seconds till an older member stood up behind me and said, what is this, some kind of love fest? (laughs) Apparently, this gentleman thought that, you know, talking about such love was like over the top and completely out of place at a church business meeting. Well, if you've been with us in our study of Romans, you might be thinking that Paul's having his own little love fest. Here in Romans 12 and 13, you might wonder that what he began to say all the way back in verse 9 of chapter 12, let love be genuine, he just kind of keeps beating the same drum. And here we are at the the end of 13, and he's still talking about the same thing. Uh, Back in chapter 12, he talked about let love be genuine. He told us how we're to love one another as believers. Then he goes on to talk about how we're to show our love to non-Christians and and how this love even extends to those who are governing authorities over us. And, And now here he is at the end of Romans 13, and he's still beating the same drum. He just keeps on continuing this talk of love, how we're to love each other and how that love is to express itself. I want to assure you that, yes, Paul is continuing his focus on love, but it is by no means overkill. And the reason is, is because love is at the very core of the Christian life. Love is at the very core of the Christian life. All the practical commands that are given us in Romans, and as we will see, even in the Old Testament law of God, the Ten Commandments, are rooted in and are a response to God's redeeming love for us. So when Scripture says, as we read moments ago, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, we remember that God demonstrated his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what we have already learned in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And when we fail to love one another as we should, as we often do, we humbly confess our shortcomings and are even comforted to know that nothing, not even our own failings, will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. A truth that we learned in Romans 8. And that should make us all the more humble and all the more grateful to God for his mercies toward us. And it ought to produce in us an even greater desire to love others as Jesus has loved us and so honor God in that way, the God of our salvation. So since the love of God in Christ is at the core of the Christian life, Jesus says himself that it is to characterize every follower of Christ. We've used these verses many times before, but I bring them to you again. John 13, 34 to 35, Jesus said the night before his crucifixion to his disciples, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus isn't beating around the bush, is he? Uh, He reiterates this, this characteristic of love that is to be true of his followers. The law of Christ is the law of love. And the law of love 
fulfills the law, namely the Ten Commandments. I want us to look at this text, Romans 13, 8 to 14, and see how Paul expounds on this concept. If you look at the text, verses 8 to 10 has a sandwich structure. A sandwich structure. So in verse 8 and in verse 10, Paul says that love fulfills the law. He states that in verse 8, and he repeats it in verse 10. And then verse 9 is the stuff in the middle of the sandwich, where Paul goes on to list four commandments from Exodus and one from Leviticus to show us how this actually plays out in our relationship to other people. Here's how love plays out and is the fulfillment of these commandments. So the law shows how we are to love, verses 8 to 10. And then verses 11 to 14 emphasize that we must love today and not delay to do this because the time is short. So I, I kind of think of it this way. There's two brief paragraphs here, verses 8 to 10, verses 11 to 14. 8 to 10 is the sandwich structure that teaches us that love fulfills the law. And as I think about that sandwich, to me, verses 11, 14 strikes me as a rush order, okay? It's like, here's the sandwich, now here's the rush order. This needs to be done today. You need to be putting this into practice today because the time is short, we must not delay. So let's look at these two brief paragraphs and the lessons that God has for us. Verses 8 to 10, the main principle is love your neighbor, that's the first main point in this passage. Love your neighbor. If you look back one verse at a verse we looked at last Sunday, Romans 13, verse 7, Paul says, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Uh, that was part of our responsibility to the governing authority as Christians. But Paul is now taking this language of owing something and uses it to segue into this next section, saying at the beginning of verse 8, owe no one anything except to love one another. Owe no one anything except to love one another. Now, when Paul says, owe no one anything, he's not forbidding Christians from ever incurring a debt of any sort. Uh, that would be virtually impossible. Um, anytime you pay your taxes, you, you are paying them because they are already owed. Uh, your utility bill, when you pay your utility bill, that is something that you owe for having used your utilities. Uh, so it would be virtually impossible to to live a completely debt-free life in that sense. What Paul is saying is there shouldn't be any outstanding payments. In other words, when you do incur a debt, you are to pay that debt promptly according to the terms of the contract. Whatever the arrangement is, you are to be a man or a woman of your word, and we pay those things off so that we do not have outstanding debts. There's only one exception to this principle, Paul says, and that's the debt of love. That's the debt of love. That is the debt that we should constantly be trying to pay, but never can. It's never paid off because it's rooted in God's love for us in Christ. The debt of love, a debt that we should always be trying to clear, but never fully can. This reminds me of something that Paul said 
back in Romans chapter 1. Remember he said in verse 16 of Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In two verses prior to that, what did Paul say? He said, I am under obligation. Literally, I am debtor to everyone everywhere, is essentially what he says. I am debtor to everyone everywhere. And the idea is that the love of God for Paul in Christ had placed Paul in debt, in eternal debt to God, And we commented at the time that Paul's debt was to God, but his payment was to people. So if I have genuine, eternal love in my heart to God, and I realize, hey, the gift of salvation is that God paid for me a debt that I could never pay, the debt of sin I owed. Therefore, I have an eternal debt to God for his love toward me. My payment is so to speak, on that debt is paid to other people. God says, you love me, you're grateful to, other, uh, grateful to me, then you pay out that debt to other people. You can never pay off the debt. But your whole life is to be lived out of love for other Christians, non-Christians, even governing authorities, everyone, everywhere. Paul says, I am debtor. Here he is saying, you are debtor too. All Christians are debtors. One commentator wrote, and I thought this was so helpful, practically speaking, it kind of just opened my eyes afresh to what this looks like practically. One commentator, comment on verse 8, said, Every time we meet someone, we ought to say to ourselves, I need to show him or her the love of Christ. I have a great and wonderful debt to pay. Isn't that a great practical way of thinking like this? Like, if I've been placed in the eternal debt of love to God by the gift of salvation toward me. Every person I meet on any given day, imagine if we looked at them with that kind of eyesight and said, hey, I need to show this person the love of Christ. I have a debt to pay. God, help me to show them your love at this. This is another payment that I can make in the power of your spirit. Again, verse 8. Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, this is an important statement, but it's critical that we understand it in light of what we have already learned in Romans. Otherwise, you're going to completely misinterpret what Paul is saying. The Holy Spirit has already said in Romans, specifically chapter 3, verse 20, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. For through the knowledge of the law, or through the law, comes the knowledge of sin. That is to say, we looked at this months ago, that the Ten Commandments don't show us how righteous we are. The Ten Commandments show us how sinful we are, how much we don't live up to the law of God. And that's why Paul goes on to say in Romans 3.28 that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. How does that work? Well, Jesus is the only one who ever perfectly kept God's law. You know why? Because Jesus is God's son who became a man, who took on himself humanity to live a life of perfect obedience in our place as our substitute, because we didn't do that. 
Jesus came and he did do that. And Jesus not only lived a life of perfect conformity to the law of God and obedience to the Father, but Jesus then went innocently to the cross of Calvary and suffered the righteous punishment of God that we deserved on account of our sin as a perfectly righteous substitute. And not only that, but three days later, Jesus rose victoriously from the grave by the power of the Holy Spirit, proving that God had accepted his sacrifice and his life of obedience on behalf of everyone who would trust in him alone for salvation. And that's why the gospel is called good news. It's good news. So when Paul says in Romans 13, 8, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, he is talking about believers, those who have already put their trust in Christ alone for salvation. Doug Moo correctly states, Paul reserves the word fulfill for Christian experience. Only Christians, as a result of the work of Christ and through the Spirit, can fulfill the law. Do you understand that? I hope so, because that is the only way that we can rightly interpret this verse. That is to say, your relationship with Jesus Christ is a matter of utmost importance. Everything begins there. Because there's no way that you or I or anybody else can be counted as righteous by God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. If you're relying on your good works or your religious observances or trying to keep the Ten Commandments or, or obeying the golden rule to be good enough to get to heaven, you're going to fall woefully short of your goal. The Bible tells us that. Scripture says that in the eyes of a, a thrice holy God, all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Oh, how we need the Lord. And the Lord has provided salvation for all who believe in him. He died on the cross. He rose again by the power of the Holy Spirit to save sinners like me and you. So that if we will turn from our sin and our self-sufficiency and trust fully in him, we are forgiven. We are reconciled to God. We are adopted into his family. And we are granted the gift of eternal life, guarantee of eternity in heaven. That's good news. Furthermore, and here's the thing for practical importance right now. The same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead by the power of God takes up residence in the life of every person who trusts in Christ so that God produces His love, His peace, His joy, His righteousness, His gentleness, His self-control in us. He pours God's love into us and he empowers us to live a life that is truly pleasing to God. The Bible says in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's the first fruit that's named there. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And so the idea is, if I put my faith in Christ, I'm indwelt by the Spirit. And the more that I am filled with the Spirit, which, which is not so much having more of the Spirit, it's letting God's Spirit have more of me, surrendering, yielding my heart every day to Him. The more I'm filled with the Spirit, the more that I'm led by the Spirit according to the Word of God, the more that I rely on the Holy Spirit as I should, 
the more I become less and less sinful and more and more like Jesus. The Spirit of God enables us to love others as we should and thereby fulfill the law as we should. Having already been counted as righteous by God through faith in Christ, we now become increasingly like Jesus Christ in our love for others. Paul repeats this principle in verse 10. Remember the sandwich structure, right? Verse 8, love your neighbor for love is the fulfilling of the law. Then in verse 10, he says, do no wrong to a neighbor for for love does, that's not what love does. Love does no wrong to a neighbor for love is the fulfilling of the law. And then verse 9 is the stuff in the middle of the sandwich. What does this look like, practically speaking? Well, Paul lists several commands showing us what this looks like. And he goes back to the Old Testament, to the Ten Commandments, which reveal the character of God. So he says, if you love your neighbor as yourself, then you're not going to engage in sinful sexual activity. You're not going to commit adultery. You're not going to have sex with somebody else's spouse or with someone who is not your spouse. If you love your neighbor as you should, then that also includes that you're not going to commit the sin of lust against them. You're not going to objectify women or men in that way. Because Jesus said, I tell you this, that if anyone looks lustfully on another person, he has already committed adultery in his heart long before the physical act ever occurs, even if the physical act never occurs. You're already guilty in here. But if you love one another and, and the Bible, uh, God's Spirit, fills you with love of Christ, then, then you're not going to do that. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't murder another person. And that includes the sin of emotional murder. If you hate someone in your heart, Jesus said, you, you're guilty of murder against that person attitudinally. But if you love them, you're not going to do that. You won't steal from them. You won't covet what they have. Instead of wishing what they had was yours, you'll actually rejoice that it belongs to them. That's what love does. We rejoice in God's goodness toward others. Love fulfills the law by not doing wrong to anyone else, but in fact doing only good to them. And God's Spirit helps us as believers to do just that as we rely on Him instead of ourselves. And this is really, folks, where we get down to the brass tacks, the practical considerations of Christianity. I thought Kent Hughes raises a really good point when he says this. Listen to this. We can easily convince others that we love God, but it is far more difficult to feign love for our neighbors. They are not fooled as easily on that count, and neither are we. Thus, our love for others provides a helpful measure of our spiritual state. End quote. See what he's saying? It's easy to talk about our love for God. It's easy to do social media posts, post Bible verse, or I'm just praising God today. Um, and again, we shouldn't judge one another, but it's easy to sing songs. It's easy to raise our hands in worship and, to come to, and, and convince others that we love God. But the true measure of our spiritual state is how do you love other people? 
How do you love other people in practical ways? Because according to Jesus, that's the real litmus test of how much you love God. If you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you will also love your neighbor as yourself. That's where we get down to the brass tacks of Christianity. With that in mind, I, I gained a, a greater appreciation for somebody I already highly expected, uh, in, uh, that I already highly respected from church history, Charles Spurgeon. Many of you have heard of him. I've quoted him many times. He was a, a British pastor that lived in the 19th century. He pastored the Metropolitan Tabernacle that had over 5,000 members, not including guests and attenders that came that were not officially a part of the church. And I had always respected Spurgeon as a uh, preacher, but I had not given a whole lot of thought to him uh, as a pastor. And uh, Spurgeon and his congregation understood this principle, that the true litmus test that you've been converted is how do you love others? And so uh, given the fact we have a membership seminar today, I found it interesting about a year ago to hear about how uh, rigorous um, the membership process was at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. There were several steps involved, and if you think ours is a bit rigorous, listen to this. If somebody wanted to join the church, they were a professing believer, they said that they believed in the gospel of Christ, which I explained to you a few moments ago, and they wanted to become a member of the Metropolitan, uh, uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle, which received only regenerate people into their membership. I mean, uh, we can't look on people's hearts, but there are certain indications. Jesus said, uh, you'll know a tree by its fruit. So they were looking for outward evidence that a person had been genuinely converted by the Spirit of God. So when someone applied for membership, uh, they went through multiple steps. The first thing they would do is they would meet with one of the elders, the lay elders of the church, uh, the pastoral leadership, if you will. They meet with an elder and they would recount their testimony, um, how they came to know Christ as their Savior. And, and as part of that testimony, they would articulate the gospel. They, they would explain how they understood that Jesus died on the cross for them and rose again, how they were trusting in, in him alone for salvation. They would share their testimony. And uh, after they were done sharing their testimony with this elder, their testimony was actually recorded in what was called the testimony books. So, so the church kept books of people's personal testimony. And then Charles Spurgeon, as the lead pastor of the church, he would then take these testimony books and he would read through the testimonies of these people that had already met with an elder, and then Spurgeon himself would meet with them. Despite his busy schedule, preaching, tons of letter writing, all these obligations he had, he would meet with each prospective candidate. And people were sometimes terrified of the thought, and I won't, I won't go into it, but Spurgeon set to, uh, tried to put them at ease, saying, no, this is a time to rejoice in what God is doing. So he would try to set them at ease, but nevertheless, they went through the second interview. And after they met with Spurgeon and everything looked good, then the original elder who met with them would bring their name before the congregation, recommending them for membership to those who were already members. And if that seemed acceptable to them, before they took a vote, the congregation, the members of the church, would then send what was called a messenger on behalf of the church, someone who was usually a deacon or an elder in the church, and would send the messenger to the person's home, to their workplace, to their neighborhood. And they would start asking questions. So what is this 
husband or wife, child, what are they like in the home? And then they would start asking the neighbors, how does this person who claims to know Christ treat you? How, he, how is he or she regarded in the neighborhood? What kind of reputation does this person have at work? Or even if they had maybe not the greatest reputation, how has that changed since they've made profession in Christ? And so the messenger would come back and report to the members how this went. And if all went well, then the person would be recommended and the congregation would tentatively approve them. So they would be then scheduled for baptism if they hadn't already been baptized as a believer in Christ. And then at the next communion service, they would receive the right hand of fellowship, at which point they officially became a member of the church. So starting today, wait, no, I'm just, <laughs> it's just to show you like Spurgeon and his congregation understood this principle. They understood that our love for others is an indication of our spiritual state. If we love God, we will love others, and that love will express itself in biblical ways, how we treat them. Imagine the impact that we could have if each of us saw ourselves as a love debtor to God that paid off our debt every time we encountered another person, a Christian, a non-Christian, a governing authority, people that cross our path every day, people at our work, our, our school place, our neighborhood, passing on the street, the gas station, the grocery store, the bank. Imagine how the gospel would spread. Well, the Bible says, specifically here in chapter 13 and in other places, that this opportunity is before us today. It's before us today. Because we're going to leave here and we're going to interact with people in our home, in our neighborhood, in the community at large, in the workplace, where we go to school. This opportunity is before us today. And that's Paul's emphasis in the final few verses of Romans 13 as he rounds off this section. If you want to live out the gospel by loving your neighbor, you must look to yourself. And that's the second point. Look to yourself, verses 11 to 14. In 11 to 14, Paul emphasizes our individual responsibility to love others as we ought and to do so with a sense of urgency. If you look at these verses, you'll notice that Paul tells us to do three things. First of all, wake up. Wake up. Look at verses 11 to the first part of verse 12. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. You know, I have a pastor friend that tweets every day. I think it's the first tweet he does every day, this tweet. Christian, we're one day closer to heaven. Imagine if we woke up every morning thinking, Christian, we're one day closer to heaven. That's Paul's point here in verses 11 and 12. The night refers to this present evil age, which is coming to an end. The New Testament describes these days in which we are now living as the last days. The last days began with Jesus' first coming, and the last days will culminate at Jesus' second coming. 
the day, the Bible says, of his return. And this should produce in each one of us a sense of urgency. A sense of urgency. We are near to our salvation, meaning our final salvation, the culmination of what God has saved us for, than when we first believed. This is a call for us to wake up from spiritual lethargy and to love others while we still have opportunity. Kent Hughes writes, quote, We ought to be like the little boy whose family clock malfunctioned and struck 15 times so that he rushed wide-eyed to his mother crying, Mommy, it's later than ever before. Hughes writes, What sanctifying logic. We should also keep in mind that if Christ does not return in our time, he will certainly come individually for us in death. Each ache, each pain, each gray hair, each new wrinkle, each funeral is a reminder that it is later than it has ever been before. It is time to love our neighbor as ourselves. End quote. Yesterday, Ruthie and I went to Pennsylvania and attended a funeral of a 25-year-old relative of ours. A boy that's less than half my age. The age of our son, Ethan. Talk about sobering. It's a reminder that we just don't know how long we have, which is why we must make the most of the time we do have, every hour, every moment of every day. It's time to wake up. Secondly, Paul says, get dressed. Get dressed. Look again at verse 12. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Then again in verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He's essentially saying the same thing in both those verses. He's using the language of getting dressed or actually of getting undressed and then getting dressed, of casting off and putting on and that's what each of us did this morning. We took off, we cast off our night clothes, our pajamas or our sweatpants or our nightgowns. And we put on our day clothes. Now in recent years, <laughs> it's become fashionable for people to wear their pajamas all day. One fashion reporter put it, quote, Americans are breaking new ground as sartorial slackers. End quote. Well, in Romans 13, Paul is telling us to stop being spiritual slackers. If you claim to know Christ as your Savior, it's time for you to put off, to cast off from yourself the clothes, so to speak, that characterized your former way of living. And it's time to put on the armor of light. So he says, cast off the works of darkness, what would be referred to as nighttime clothes, our former way of life when, when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Paul says, cast them off. Don't just take them off, cast them off. Like I can't, I, I, I want to get these things off of me. That's the idea here. The works of darkness are those sinful activities that are designed to gratify my personal lusts rather than acts of the Spirit that are 
designed to serve others. It's the difference between lust and love, pleasing self versus serving others. He says, cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. What a powerful image this is. He doesn't say just put on your daytime clothes. He says, put on the armor of light. That word armor reminds us of another passage in the New Testament, doesn't it? Ephesians chapter 6, where, where Paul spends a good number of verses describing our spiritual armor. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, our, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of, of, of peace so that we're ready to go to proclaim this good news to others. Paul calls this in Ephesians 6, the whole armor of God. So that's why he uses the same language here in Romans 13 saying, cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, which he equates with in verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be robed in the things that characterize Christ. Put on, as it were, the fruit of the Spirit. These are not mere clothes. This is weaponry with which we fight off the influence of the evil one and accomplish God's work and wage his war in this world. Overcoming the evil one by love. In other words, Paul is saying, if you are a Christian, then dress the part. If you're really a Christian then dress the part. And that's what it means to live the gospel. Paul, in his letter to Pastor Titus, told Titus to tell believers, the people in his congregation, to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Another translation says, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior so that in every way they, meaning the believers, will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Now, the gospel already is attractive. It's the most beautiful thing in all the world. That's not the issue. The question is, would others know that by looking at our lives? Would they look at the character traits that you, the expressions of love that you show and say, man, how do they live that life? I want that love. I want that joy. I want that peace. Look at how well disciplined they are in their behavior. Look at the peaceful relationships they have with everybody around them. They are a peacemaker. They're a peace promoter. Look at how faithful they are in the tasks that they do on any given day. How do they live such a life? None look seem to be humanly possible. And your answer can be because it's not. But let me tell you about the one who made this possible in my life. And he can do the same thing in your life. The gospel is attractive, but we're to make it appear attractive by how we live it out. That's why Paul says, wake up, get dressed, and thirdly, finally, walk properly. Verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. In the New Testament, the word walk refers to our conduct, our behavior, our way of life, and the same is the case here. They are the things that we do with our body. And that takes us back to Romans 12.1, doesn't it? 
in light of all God's mercies toward us, what's our response? We present our bodies as a living sacrifice to him. God, I no longer belong to me. I belong to you. My body is your instrument of blessing to those around me. That's the idea. I find it interesting that the sins that Paul lists in verse 13 actually tend to happen more at night. You notice that? Uh, Paul is using night as a euphemism for uh, unspiritual works of darkness, you know, like uh, sinful activities and uh, daytime activities as the righteous good activities that ought to characterize Christians. But I think it's just worth noting that even the sins he lists in verse 13 tend to happen more at night. Getting drunk, having sex, a pre premarital sex or extramarital sex, nothing wrong with sex itself, in marriage. But premarital sex, extramarital sex is a sin against God. Bible says in Hebrews 13, the marriage bed is undefiled, the marriage bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So we again, activities happen at night, getting drunk, having premarital sex or extramarital sex, indulging in sensual pleasure. So anything that is designed to gratify my own sinful lust. So this would even include pornography. Even arguing and fighting tend to happen more at night. When we're tired, our emotions are worn, and we're just more susceptible to fleshly, devilish attacks. So again, these things don't happen exclusively at night, but I think it is a good warning to us, isn't it? Most of us live out our lives during the day and we're to go to sleep at night. But the later it gets the more we expose ourselves and the more that we're susceptible to temptations like getting drunk, engaging in sexual activity that's not pleasing to God, killing time on the internet or, or scrolling through our phone, we end up looking at things we shouldn't. I remember something that Andy Rooney of CBS said years and years ago that I never forgot. It was, it was kind of his quote at the end of his program. Was it 60 Minutes or whatever he was on? But whatever it was, he would say this quote at the end of the program. I thought it was so good. He said, go to bed. Whatever you're staying up for isn't worth it. And you know, I've got to, that's not 100% true, but like 99% of the time, it's true. That even if what you're doing isn't necessarily sinful, it's probably not the best use of your time. If it's getting late, just go to bed and you'll spare yourself a lot of temptation. You'll avoid sin and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to go the next day. If we want to walk properly, we must live wisely, which enables us to love well. So I'd say the transformative truth of this text, if we could tie it all together in one sentence, it would be this. Love others today by clothing yourself with Christ. Love others today by clothing yourself with Christ. That, I believe, is the transformative truth of verses 8 to 14. But the question is, will you allow God's word to transform you? What difference will this text make in your life starting today? I found it interesting that while Pastor Mike and I were discussing this text earlier in the week, Mike reminded me that God used this very text, specifically verse 13, Romans 13, 13, 
to bring Augustine, St. Augustine, to saving faith in Christ. At this point in his life, uh, Augustine recounts this in his confessions that he was struggling having two wills inside of him that were doing battle with each other. There was, the, there was one will that was drawing him to God's love. That was the work of the Holy Spirit within him, drawing him to God's love. I, I thought it was so interesting, the song we sang earlier, Drawing Out My Heart to Thee, right? We, we sang about that earlier. Augustine sensed that, but he sensed this other will within him, the will of the flesh that was pulling him toward all this self-gratifying lust that had so characterized his life to this point. And he got so upset that he had been with his friend Olypius, and and Olypius just saw the torment he was in in his heart so much so that that he didn't even speak to him. He didn't know what to say. He could tell that he was really upset. And and Augustine actually left his friend just to, to be tormented in private, as it were. Well, Trevin Wax, using the present tense, describes what happened next, mixing in some of Augustine's own words, speaking of it in the present tense. He said, his torment and soul sickness reaches its climax. When suddenly Augustine throws himself on the ground and gives way to the tears that have been flooding his heart, he cries out to God in despair, asking like the psalmist, how long, O Lord? I was saying these things and weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart when suddenly I heard the voice of a boy or girl, I know not which, coming from the neighboring house, chanting over and over again, pick it up, read it, pick it up, read it. Augustine darts back to where he left his friend Olypius, opens up the scriptures and sees Romans 13, 13, a passage that speaks directly to the sin that Augustine cannot seem to escape from. I wanted to read no further, neither did I need to. For instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. Augustine and Olypius, who was converted with him, Go back to Augustine's mother, Monica, who had prayed for her son for years and years and rejoice with her over their newfound faith. And Augustine confesses to God, you had pierced my heart with your love. You had pierced my heart with your love. Has God's love pierced your heart? Is it evident to your family? to your friends, your neighbors, your classmates, your co-workers. Let us wake up, get dressed, and walk properly. Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are for your word that builds us up in the most holy faith. I pray, Lord, that if anyone is like Augustine, battling with the will of the flesh and the will of God and has not yet been converted, has never surrendered themselves to you. I pray that right this moment they would put their faith fully in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and present themselves to you to be used as you will. And we know, God, how greatly you used Augustine in the years following his conversion. Lord, who's to say what you might do through a man or woman or boy or girl here 
who says no to sin and says yes to God, trusting Christ alone for salvation and relying on your spirit to fill them with your love that then becomes evident to everyone around them. Lord, we thank you for this promise, this provision through the gospel. We ask that you would pour out your love on us abundantly, even more so through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.